0: This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. <laughs> The stories about Ray Lewis are insane. He used football as a survival mechanism while others around him fell victim to drugs and violence. His mentor was shot during a bank job gone horribly wrong. His college roommate was brutally beaten to death in their dorm room. Four years into his professional career as the Baltimore Ravens take no prisoners linebacker, he found himself under arrest and charged with a shocking double murder. And Ray Lewis was part of some of the greatest sports moments in history. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show. That wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Broke Down in a Cowtown MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights from ABC to a broadcast of Super Bowl Thirty Four. And why would I play you that specific slice of Tapestry of Nations cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the biggest sporting event in the world on January 31st, 2000. And that was the day that Ray Lewis decided to lead an entourage to a Super Bowl after party at an Atlanta nightclub. A party that stretched well into the next day and ended with two men bleeding out in the middle of the street. On this episode... Anger, frustration, grief, brutal beatings, a double murder, and Ray Lewis. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season 6, Sportsland. Ray Lewis couldn't speak. He tried, but all he could muster was a pitiful stutter. The word just wouldn't form. That one word he wanted to scream out loud at the top of his lungs, mama. He could hear it in his head, and he could picture her running as soon as she heard him say her name, running straight to him. Her oldest child, but still her baby Ray. She would comfort him, tell him that this too shall pass. But Ray couldn't say anything and the word never came, and neither did his mama. Ray looked down at his lap, and his whole body began to shake again. The long garter snake slowly slithered its way around his legs. Ray could see the thing's little red tongue dart in and out of its head. Snakes smell with their tongues. He knew that. He wondered if snakes could smell fear. Laughter came from the doorway, and Ray looked up, and through the tears in his eyes, he saw his mother's boyfriend standing there. The same boyfriend who had just walked outside into the pouring rain and hunted for a garter snake in the grass for the sole purpose of bringing it inside to throw at a scared 10-year-old kid. And the more Ray cried, the more the guy seemed to get off on the whole thing. It was humiliating. And this is worse than the beatings. The beatings were just physical pain. Once you learn to expect them, you learn to deal with them. The fists, the blows, they were almost routine at this point. Ray took the beatings, so did his mother. That burnt Ray the most, watching his mom suffer. She worked three jobs to support five kids, and every night she came home to this? It didn't feel like this too would pass. It didn't feel right. Ray vowed to protect her, but he needed to be stronger. Not bigger, stronger. Stronger meant that it didn't matter how big the guys were who tried to knock him around. And it didn't matter that Ray was only in the second grade, it wasn't about size. It was about strength, but push-ups and sit-ups would only get him so far. Pop Warner football would take him the rest of the way. Playing for the Lakeland Lumberjacks didn't just get Ray in shape, it taught him about survival. Football was structure and discipline. He didn't give a shit about getting the ball to the end zone. The game was about squaring off with the guy standing across from you. The guy wanted nothing more than to take you down you weren't about to let that happen. You trained for this, in your body and in your mind. The ball was snapped and you had seconds to make your move, seconds to dominate. Ray waited for that moment back at home. The moment that asshole tried to put his hands on his mother again, Ray was ready. Ready to pounce. Ready to dominate. And when the moment finally came, as he knew it would, Ray didn't back down. And that motherfucker started running his mouth, he threatened violence again and Ray stood up from the table. David to this motherfucker's Goliath. But before Ray could get the satisfaction, his mother stood up. She'd had enough. She told her boyfriend where he could go, straight through the front door and never come back. Wasn't the last man to walk out of Ray Lewis's family house, and it certainly wasn't the first. That would be Ray's birth father, who was never around. Well, he was around in the greater Lakeland, Florida area, a former high school wrestling champ who now only wrestled with a notoriously bad rep, but He'd never been in Ray's life. Ray always wondered what he was like. He was pissed at the guy for leaving, for abandoning his mother like that. But he couldn't help but think that maybe his father had his own story to tell. And when Ray was a teenager, he got the opportunity to hear that story. For the first time in as long as he could remember, his father actually wanted to hang out. And Ray packed an overnight bag. He let years of conflicted emotions fall by the wayside. He was grateful for a second chance, for a shot with a father figure who perhaps wouldn't physically or emotionally abuse him. He looked out the window and waited to see headlights pull up. He wondered what kind of car his dad drove. He waited. Maybe it was a fancy car. And he kept waiting. The hours dragged on and his father never showed up. The betrayal, the hurt, it cut deep. Deeper than the scars inflicted by the guys who drifted in and out of his mother's life. Getting stood up by his own father triggered Ray Lewis's self-described, quote-unquote, need to be confronted. His need to stand across from another guy who wanted a fucking piece of him. His need to prove that he was nothing like his father, that he could do anything his father did, only better. He joined the high school wrestling team, just like his dad. And then he proceeded to blow all of his dad's records out of the water. Most wins, most pins, fastest pin, and then he did himself one better. He became Lakeland's first state champion. It was an honor his father never got a whiff of. And still, he wasn't satisfied. So he took it up another notch. He brought his wrestling strategy to the gridiron. He fused the two sports. It didn't matter that he wasn't as big as a lot of other players. He was stronger in body and mind. And Ray Lewis was the linebacker straight out of your worst nightmare. He was going to hit you so hard you would wish you had a time machine. And that way, you could go back in time and decide to not play football in the first place because not playing football would mean that you would never have to experience this excruciating pain. Your bones felt like they were on fire, your head throbbed, your vision blurred, you couldn't remember your own goddamn name. And there's Ray, watching you. He wants you to struggle to stand back up. He wants you wobbling and shaking. And if you do manage to get back under your two feet, he wants you to turn around and walk the other way right off the field never come back he wants you to have a life-altering epiphany that nothing is worth this that no one will ever be as good as ray lewis you'll never be that hungry you'll never be that tough all you want now is for the fucking game to stop forever no more football because if you go back to that line of scrimmage if you bend your knees one more time get into your stance and wait for the center to hike the ball that means only one thing that ray lewis It's going to fucking hurt you. Ten years went by slow. Ten years of grinding it out street ball on back alleys and neighborhood driveways and no pads no helmets just blood sweat and tears spilled on dirt and asphalt 10 years of playing rougher getting hit in the face harder than you ever got hit at home whatever your mom's new boyfriend did or didn't do whatever new promise your father failed to live up to fuck all that shit bury it when you buried a player on the other team with every muscle in your body 10 years of climbing the ladder, youth football to the varsity squad, and then you're cutting the names of your opponents into the fade of your hair. Guess what, motherfucker? I'm not just in your head, you're on my head. That was a neat trick. The sack a dude so hard you could hear him whimper as he hit the ground. And then when he gets back up, take off your helmet and read it and weep, fucko. 10 years of coaches calling recruitment letters, of feeling the devastating loss as a state championship slipped through your calloused hands and then the rush of turning down Florida State because they undervalued you, FSU. Man, FSU stood for one thing, fuck state universities. Plus, Ray Lewis was meant to be a hurricane. He found a way in, like a QB sneak. A player at the University of Miami blew out his knee, and they needed someone in a pinch. Sucked for that other guy, but for Ray, it was kismet. And now, here he was, a success story, playing ball for the U, not another casualty back in Lakeland like Timmy Moore, his high school teammate, murdered, or Raymond King, Ray's mentor, shot dead by police during a bank heist gone wrong, Ray could count at least 15 friends and family members who weren't here anymore. Shit, man, if the abusive boyfriends and absent fathers didn't get you, the drive-bys and the drug deals and the cops would. Ray kept his nose and his hands clean. Football was everything. Football was life, but life was hard, and money was tight. Ray's girlfriend was pregnant, so he put himself out there. It was April 20th, 1996, draft day. Ray Lewis's name was one of many vying for a coveted spot on an NFL team roster, and there was no higher rung on the ladder. The NFL was for the best of the best, the hungriest, the toughest motherfuckers out there, and tough, hungry motherfuckers got paid to play to an audience of millions watching at home. Money problems would be a thing of the past, But for Ray Lewis, it was hard looking to the future when the past was still hanging around. He couldn't focus on the draft. He wasn't even in New York City, where the NFL staged its multi-day event at Madison Square Garden. Ray Lewis was still in Miami at a funeral for a friend. He dialed the beeper number. No response. He dialed it again. Nothing. He knew it made no sense to keep dialing. He knew that doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, well, that was the definition of insanity. But sometimes, you can't help but feel a little insane. So he kept punching the numbers. No matter how many times he dialed, there was no answer. Because Red, Red was dead. They found Red, a.k.a. Marlon Barnes, linebacker for the University of Miami, dead on the floor of the dorm room he shared with Ray Lewis. It was one week before draft day. Earl Little, the friend who found him, thought Red was just playing a sick joke. He thought Red's head was surrounded by fruit punch. Earl called out his name, and Red tried to answer, but the words didn't come out. Earl said his friend's name again, and this time Red turned his head painfully slow. And at that moment, Earl realized it wasn't a joke at all. Red's face was gone, his eyes, his mouth, his cheeks. They were all crushed, like his face had collapsed in on itself, or something had collapsed on top of it. It was fucking brutal and the blood was everywhere. Red was dead by the time the paramedics arrived. In another room, Red's friend, Tim Oneika Lumpkins, was found pinned between a bed and the wall. She too had been badly beaten. She died after she was rushed to the hospital. Police arrested Tim Oneika's estranged boyfriend for the double homicide. He did it with a 12-gauge shotgun. He found Red first and beat him relentlessly with the butt end while Timonika screamed. Only after he'd struck Red's face 22 times did he stop. And then he went after the mother of his child. The news reached Ray in Daytona where he was partying ahead of the draft. It's about Red, the voice on the other end of the line said. They found him dead this morning at your place. Ray put a hole in a nearby wall with his fist. Then he got in his Suburban and just drove. Didn't know where he was going. Didn't even know where he was. He did know that Red should have been with him in Daytona if he just hadn't bailed on the trip and stayed home at the last minute. And that one choice, it made all the difference. Ray made the choice to bury his friend before he did anything else. Football could wait. After the funeral, Ray was taken to a private suite at Joe Robbie Stadium, home of the Miami Dolphins while the names were drafted in New York, the phone rang. It was the director of football operations for the Baltimore Ravens. Ray's name was about to be called. The Ravens were a new franchise established by the owner of the Cleveland Browns. And though they had a name, they still didn't have a uniform design or even official colors. No jerseys and not even a ball cap. Ray Lewis didn't have a jersey to put on for a photo op. Not even a ball cap to wear for the official announcement that he was a first round pick. But he did have a black t-shirt with Red's picture on the front and back. And when he finally did get his Ravens gear, he vowed to always wear that shirt with Red's photo at every game. He called it his armor. Once he played football as an outlet for his anger, frustration, and grief. Now he played it to honor the memories of the people he lost. And before long, Ray Lewis would fight for the right to play football at all. Mama thought it was a bad idea. Don't go, baby Ray, she told him over the phone. It was too risky. Whiteout conditions up and down the entire eastern seaboard. And the snowstorm wasn't going anywhere anytime soon, and neither should Ray. Flying was out of the question. All planes were grounded, but despite his mother's warning, Ray still wanted to find a way to get from Baltimore to Atlanta. He desperately wanted to be in Atlanta for Super Bowl 34. Not to play in it, though he would have liked that, too. But the Ravens, having ended their 1999 season finishing third in the AFC Central Division, that was impossible. But instead, at least as a spectator, as a fan, as part of the NFL community. Plus, he had autographs to sign and appearances to make as part of the NFL Experience event. Now, let's be real. One big selling point for heading to Atlanta for Super Bowl weekend was because the parties were gonna be off the hook. Bigger than anything happening in Charm City. Ray had two options. One, sit tight, watch the game on TV, has some friends over, pop some bottles, and then once the storm blew over, hop a plane to Hawaii for the Pro Bowl. Then there would be other Super Bowls, and Mama could rest easy knowing that her baby wasn't putting himself in harm's way. Or two, call up his driver, Dwayne and see if he had some of those chains he could throw on the tires of his Lincoln Navigator. It would cost three grand a day for Dwayne to chauffeur him around, but Ray was a 24-year-old football phenom with a four-year contract worth $26 million. He was good for the money. Ray chose option number two, and the drive was a bitch. They arrived in Atlanta in one piece, but if Ray Lewis thought he had skirted disaster simply by navigating a car through a snowstorm, he was sorely mistaken. It was what happened After the storm that he had to worry about. After the Super Bowl. Ray Lewis was about to regret his decision to go to Atlanta. He should have listened to his mama. January 31st, 2000. Early. The Super Bowl was history. St. Louis over Tennessee. 23-16. But Ray Lewis wasn't thinking about football. Ray Lewis was glued to the TV set in his Atlanta hotel room. The local early bird news was reporting on an incident in the city's Buckhead district. Just an hour or two earlier, some shit went down. Some people got hurt, and the cops were looking for a Lincoln Navigator riddled with bullet holes. Shit. Ray tried to remember where Dwayne had taken the car. He changed the channel. Another station. Another news report and two men dead from stab wounds they sustained outside the Cobalt Lounge. Fuck. This, this wasn't happening. Ray replayed the last few hours over in his head. He wondered if the blood was still all over the back of the Lincoln Navigator. He picked up the phone and dialed Dwayne's number. Dwayne answered. Dwayne didn't say much. Dwayne was busy. Dwayne, you watching the news? You see what's going down? Dwayne couldn't talk right now. He was talking to someone else. Someone that was standing right next to him. Atlanta PD. In the late 1990s, big tech came come to Atlanta. So did the Summer Olympics. LaFace Records artists, OutKast and Goody Mob were putting the city on the hip hop map. And the Buckhead District was the place to be. Especially if you liked to party. Local government made partying easier than ever. Atlanta waived its requirement for new businesses to build parking lots, which led to an explosion of new bars and clubs. Soon, there were 100 bars and restaurants with liquor licenses all within a three block radius. It was the wild west of the dirty south. Anyone and everyone opened a new joint, including young entrepreneurs with zero business experience. And they saw that money could be made hand over fist, but they also saw that the competition was fierce. You did what you had to do in order to stay open and stay vital. You didn't ask to see an ID. He looked the other way when a deal went down, and deals went down all night long. Last call in Atlanta wasn't until 4 a.m. And it was around 4 in the morning on January 31st, 2000, when Ray Lewis and his entourage stumbled out of the Cobalt Lounge. But they weren't alone. A group of guys from Ohio followed them out. One of those guys had been trying to sling some dope, but Ray's crew wasn't buying and the Ohio group took it personally. So they talked shit. They told Ray's bling was fucking stupid. The joke was on them. They couldn't afford shit this nice if they tried. Ray's earrings, his diamond studded gold necklace, his Piaget watch, his black and white suit, his long mink coat. He was draped in a quarter million dollars worth of gear. Easy, it was how he rolled. It was how anyone rolled if they came from nothing. From being beat on by strange men and rejected by your own father to this. A 24-year-old football phenom with a four-year contract worth $26 million. You drink Remy Martin in the VIP room. You attract every woman within earshot shop like a fucking magnet. You let them know. And now, a couple of Ray's friends, Joseph Sweeting and Reginald Oakley, were letting these Ohio boys know where they could go, and that was the fuck out of here. Oakley was heated. He was in these guys' faces. Ray grabbed him by the waist of his pants and pulled him away. Let's go back to the limo. Fuck these dudes, nothing good is gonna happen here. Ray led his crew to the Lincoln Navigator where it idled with Dwayne behind the wheel. And the Ohio group were close behind. One of them pointed at Ray. Who the fuck do you think you are, he said. Oakley was back in the guy's face now, a buffer between Ray Lewis and his aggressor. That did it. This guy from Ohio had a Moe champagne bottle in his hand. He raised it up high in the air and then brought it down sideways on Oakley's head smacked him hard with a thud. Oakley's head split open. Blood ran down his face. The two other Ohio guys jumped Sweeting. And in that moment, to quote Ray Lewis, all hell broke loose. The guys who had Sweeting were dragging him along the ground now, kicking the shit out of him. Oakley was swinging his fists around in a daze, the blood gushing from his head wound. It became harder to tell who was on who and who was hitting who for 90 seconds, it was absolute chaos. And for 90 seconds, Ray Lewis later claimed, he did nothing but watch his crew do fierce and violent battle on the street in Buckhead. It wasn't until two of the Ohio guys screamed and fell to the pavement that Ray jumped into action. They both clutched wounds on their chests. One of them was lying in a pool of his own blood. Ray's eyes went wide. He told everyone to get in the limo now. And they all jumped in, about 10 people total, hearts pumping, adrenaline on 11. Oakley bleeding all over the fucking seat, and Ray told Dwayne to drive. Dwayne hit the gas, something hit the back panel of the limo, and then the sound of something pinging off the bumper. Gunshots, firing now in rapid succession, bullets whizzing past the speeding Lincoln. A tire was hit, it wheezed, the Lincoln wobbled but stayed on course. About a mile away, safely out of harm's way, Dwayne pulled the limo into a parking lot. Everyone was talking. Ten miles were counting what happened, what was going to happen next. And Ray didn't want anyone talking about anything. Everybody just shut the fuck up, he yelled. This ain't going to come back on nobody but me. Later that morning, when Ray called Dwayne only to discover that the cops had already gotten to him, he knew that statement he made in the car would come true, that it would come back to haunt him. Two of the guys from the Ohio crew were dead, Jason Baker, 21, and Richard Lawler, 24, both stabbed in the heart. Dwayne told the cops that in the aftermath, he heard Oakley say, I stabbed mine. Sweeting replied, I stabbed mine too. He also said that Ray didn't stay out of the fight like he implied. He said that Ray was, in fact, in the mix, throwing punches. But when Ray was questioned by police, he told them he didn't know the names of anyone else in the limo. The cops smelled bullshit, and it wasn't just what people like Dwayne and Ray were saying or not saying. In addition to the blood found inside Ray's limo, there was blood on a bathrobe and a pillow in Ray's hotel room. State prosecutors would later refer to it as a trail of blood, and the trail led to one man. Ray Lewis was arrested and charged with the double murder of Jason Baker and Richard Lawler. PD cuffed him, stuffed him into a Chevy Cavalier, and brought him to jail where he changed into an orange jumpsuit and waited for 15 days before his lawyer got him out. He maintained his innocence, and the Ravens stood by their star linebacker Dwayne, the limo driver, seemed to change his story a little every time he told it. And the Atlanta DA appeared on local television to say he would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Ray Lewis killed those two men. Oakley and Sweeting turned themselves in. And as Ray awaited his trial, the questions kept coming. Why did they burn a photo of Ray's entourage that had just been taken during their night out at the Cobalt? What was in the laundry bag that someone took from the Lincoln Navigator and tossed into a dumpster? And where did the clothes go that Ray Lewis wore that night? His suit, his mink coat, almost a quarter million dollars worth of stuff, vanished, lost somewhere in the past. of a home field advantage is a distant memory when you're on enemy territory opposing team stadiums are full of locals rabid fans diehards fans who paint their faces with home team colors not your colors fans who hate your fucking guts before they even learn your name because you don't play for their team as a professional football player you gotta get used to it It comes with the gig stadiums full of fans hate on you for three hours straight they scream they shout You trained yourself to tune it all out like it's another drill of practice, but some things are hard to tune out. Some things are hard to forget. September 24th, 2006, Cleveland Browns Stadium. Ray Lewis and the Baltimore Ravens took the field for the third game of the regular season. Ray pretended that the fans heckling him in the stands didn't bug him. Truth be told, they really didn't. Fuck the haters. All but one. One fan could not be ignored. Ray saw his own name written up in the crowd. He stopped to look. And there in the seats behind the end zone, a fan was holding a giant poster with a drawing of a knife that read, how can Ray Lewis still be free? Ray had heard it all before. Liar, monster, murderer. In the eyes of the law, Ray Lewis was none of those things. Well, okay, maybe only two out of three. Six years earlier, in 2000, just two weeks into his trial for the murders of Jacynth Baker and Richard Lawler, Ray cut a plea deal on a misdemeanor charge of obstruction of justice. He maintained his innocence. But he did admit that his original statement, the one in which he claimed he didn't know any of the people in the limo with him on the night of the murders, was not true. This came after Ray's driver, Dwayne, recanted his original statement that he saw Ray throw punches during the fight outside the Cobalt Lounge. The DA knew that whatever case he thought he had was quickly unraveling. And so, in exchange for his plea, Ray got one year probation. The NFL slapped him with a $250,000 fine, and Joseph Sweeting and Reginald Oakley were also later acquitted of their charges. Ray went back to football, the thing that had offered an outlet for his anger, grief, and frustration since he was just 10 years old. And just like he did when he was a kid, he played the 2000 season like a man who had something to prove like a man playing to survive. And the Ravens were shit hot that year. With Ray Lewis, they not only went to the Super Bowl, they became the second team ever to record a defensive shutout in football's biggest game. Not everyone shared in the celebration. Dissenting voices continued to put pressure on Ray Lewis. Richard Lawler's aunt was one of those voices. In January 2001, she stood outside the Raymond James Stadium in Tampa with a photo collage of her nephew while Ray was named Super Bowl MVP inside. Sometimes, when Baltimore played in Cleveland, she went to the Cleveland Browns Stadium to hand out flyers demanding justice for Richard Lawler. Shortly after, Ray settled a civil suit with Lawler and Baker's families for an undisclosed sum. However, Lawler's aunt had a change of heart. Rage and grief had blinded her from seeing Ray the way she saw him now, the famous guy at the center of the entourage on that fateful night, the fall guy. This was exactly how Ray Lewis wanted to be seen, not just as a 13-time Pro Bowler, not just as the guy with two Defensive Player of the Year awards. Ray Lewis wasn't just a Super Bowl champion who was hungrier and stronger and more fearsome than any other player on the field. He was a man who had transcended a rough past to make a better future for himself, and not just for himself, but for others. He donated Thanksgiving meals to 400 Baltimore families every year, He bought 100 Christmas presents for underprivileged Baltimore kids. He picked up the tab for classroom supplies for 1,200 Baltimore students in public schools. Ray Lewis let his actions on the gridiron do the talking. He remained loyal to the Ravens for 17 seasons. Even the NFL itself seemed to let bygones be bygones when they put Ray in their commercials and later hired him as a TV analyst. But forgiving and forgetting isn't for everyone. For many, Ray Lewis's good deeds were merely a diversion from all the unanswered questions. The ones about Ray's missing suit and mink coat, about the bag that was tossed into a dumpster, about the elusive burned photo. To many, Ray Lewis was an example of an untouchable sports figure who used his power and influence to get away with something, something that was horrible, truly horrible. And to fans like the one holding the sign in the end zone at Cleveland Browns Stadium, it was beyond disappointing that the NFL simply looked the other way. But Ray Lewis knew all about disappointment. Earlier that year, in the spring of 2006, he received an unexpected phone call. It was his estranged father. His girlfriend had kicked him out of the house. He needed a place to stay. Ray decided that it was time to heal. He was ready to forgive his father for the things he had done, or rather the things he hadn't done. Ray Lewis's father needed help, and Ray Lewis had help to give. Ray drove to his grandmother's house in Lakeland, where they agreed they would meet. He waited, paced the room, and waited some more. He looked out the window, and pretty soon it hit him. His father wasn't showing up. Some things never change, and neither do some people. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts, because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show, guys.